How does a man walk in wisdom? Welcome to Cutting It Straight with Pastor H.B. Charles Jr., author and pastor teacher at Shiloh Church in Jacksonville and Orange Park, Florida. Watch your step, redeem the time, and understand God's will. Today, Pastor Charles brings you three ways to learn from Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, as you learn to walk in wisdom. And now, here's Pastor H.B. Charles Jr. Ephesians chapter 5 is our text for today. I want to specifically focus your attention on verses 15 through 17 of Ephesians chapter 5. It's my goal to work our way through the latter half of Ephesians 5 through the end of chapter 6 in the coming weeks. Specifically, on next Lord's Day, God willing, I want to pick up at verse 22 and just slowly walk through the next section where the Apostle Paul teaches us how to honor Christ at home and at the job. He'll talk about relationships between husbands and wives, sons, rather children and parents, employers and employees. So we encourage your presence on next Lord's Day this morning. I want to look at three verses, verses 15 through 17. In the English Standard Version, the reading of God's Word is this. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most, or rather making the use, the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Amen. I want to label the message simply walk in wisdom. Walk in wisdom. I was on an extended trip preaching in different cities. I had been away from home for a moment, and I was homesick. Took a flight home in the middle of the night to Los Angeles. And as the plane began to descend at LAX, I looked out of the window and saw the beautiful lights of the city and thought to myself, what a beautiful city this is. And then we landed. And I had to drive home in traffic in the middle of the night. And driving home, you could not help but see the evidences of crime and poverty and other plagues on the city. And once arriving home, I turned on the local news to get caught up on current events only to hear the lingering devastation on the city from 
riots that had recently taken place. And taking it all in just made me sad and sorrowful. And I thought to myself, this is a horrible place to live. But I caught the irony of it. One moment I was looking out and seeing the city, and it was beautiful, and just hours later, I declared it to be a horrible place, but in between those two periods, nothing in the city had changed. What had changed was the perspective from which I saw the city. What is your perspective on life? How do you view the city you live in, the state of the nation, the condition of the culture? What do you think the world is coming to? I submit to you that your answer to those questions are determined by your perspective on life. Either your perspective is from above or below. Your perspective is either heavenly or worldly. Your perspective is either God-centered or man-centered. What is your perspective on life? Are you a pessimist or an optimist? Do you, do you see the cup half empty or half full? I contend that if you are a Christian, your testimony should not be that the cup is half empty or half full. Your cup should run over. But that's determined by your perspective. The biblical word for this idea of proper perspective on life is the term wisdom. Wisdom is truth applied. It is the proper application of divine truth. Wisdom is to live out the life of the teachings of our faith. On one hand, Biblical wisdom is theological. It is God-centered, not man-centered. But not only is it theological, it is practical. It is about how you live your life in light of the truth of God. In fact, there are three ways we learn and live the truth. First is by biblical knowledge. You cannot know God if you do not know the Word of God. Secondly is by personal experience. You start by knowing God through His revelation in His Word, but once you have been walking in the truth, there ought to come a place where you don't just know it because you can quote it, you know it because you live it. You've seen God work for yourself. But not only do we learn and live the truth by 
biblical knowledge and by personal experience, but, but also by godly wisdom. There, there will come a time as you walk with God that there will be no chapter and verse to specifically tell you which path to go down. And even if you have walked with God for a long time, there will be times when you are following God and you've walked with them a long way. You just ain't been down that street with him before. How do you know which way to go? This is where biblical wisdom is needed. And this is the life that Paul calls us to in Ephesians 5 verses 15 through 17. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. The text here is intended to teach us that Christians are to live with a God-centered perspective rather than a man-centered perspective. Christians are to live with a God-centered perspective, not a man-centered perspective. Or to use the language of the text, you and I should walk in wisdom. How do you walk in wisdom? Three verses, I believe, teach three ways to walk in wisdom. First, verse 15 says, watch your step. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. The key term of verse 15 is the term walk. It is a metaphor for one's behavior, consistent conduct, or lifestyle. Ephesians 5 verse 15 is the fifth time Paul in chapters 4 and 5 have bid Christians to walk a certain way. Note chapter 4 verse 1 exhorts, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Verse 17 says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Then in our chapter, chapter 5, verse 2 says, walk in love. And then at the end of verse 8, Paul says, walk as children of light. Ephesians begins by saying that if you are saved, you have already been seated with Christ in heavenly places. But if you have been seated with Christ in heavenly places, he is now saying the evidence of that will be how you walk on earth. And here he says specifically that Those who are seated with Christ should walk in wisdom. Verse 15 says, look carefully then how you walk. That word carefully. In the older versions, King James Version, 
says, walk circumspectly. The church covenant we read earlier in this service, there is a line where speaks of being circumspect in our deportment. That's classic old English language that's just saying what Paul is saying here, that you look carefully how you walk. It means carefully, the term means exactness or accuracy or precision. He is saying here that God wants you to be careful about how you walk. The end of verse 8 says, walk as children of light. That's about where you walk. Don't, Don't walk in darkness, walk in the light. But now when he says walk in wisdom, he is trying to say to us, church, that God is not just concerned about where you walk. He's also concerned about how you walk. You could be on the right path and still fall if you ain't careful how you walk. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he is like a tree planted by the streams of water that bring forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also does not wither. In all he does, he prospers God wants you to have a stable life. But to have a stable, strong, and fruitful life, your life must be governed by the Word of God, and you must be careful not to follow those who don't follow God. Be careful how you walk. In fact, he says, look carefully. That's an exhortation. The imperative is watch how you walk so that you'll be careful. Pay attention to how you walk. If you're going to, if you're going to walk carefully, you've got to be focused. Do you ever get nervous in the restaurant? You want the food to come, but you get nervous when you see the waiter or waitress coming, carrying a big old tray with all the plates on it, and, you, and just they're scurrying to your table, and you, you, you almost think this, just is, this is about to go bad. Sometimes they don't even have a tray. They got all the plates on their arms, <laughs> balancing them on their arms. You wonder, how do they do this? It's because they're not paying attention to what's in their hands. They're paying attention to where they're going. Paul here then says to us, look carefully how you walk. How do you do that? Not as unwise, but as what? Wise. Do not be unwise, but be wise. As I said, wisdom is truth applied. It is not so much intellectual but moral. 
Biblical wisdom is not about what you know. It's about what you do with what you know. It's about how you live, not merely what you know. That's why, you know, in our community, when someone goes off to to school and learn so much that they stop trusting God, the old folk call them an educated fool. <laughs> Biblical wisdom. It, it's, it's theological. It is moral. It, it, is, it is living out the life of the teachings of our faith. And this is the life that we're called to. We're to be careful how we walk, but to do that, he says, you've got to walk in the wisdom of God. It requires, first of all, that you know this God. Psalm 14, verse 1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and understanding. If you're going to be wise, you must know God. But if you're going to be wise, you also must trust in Jesus. Colossians chapter 2 verse 3 says, in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you want to know God, know Jesus. You, You cannot be wise unless you repent of your sins and run to the cross and trust Jesus as Savior and Lord. The the wisdom of God is found in His Son, Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, that the Word of God is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. To be wise, you must know God. You must trust in Jesus. To be wise, you have to know who to hang around. Proverbs 13, verse 20 says, the one that walks with the wise is wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. To be wise, you need to learn how to pray. James chapter 1, verse 5 says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all with out chastising us for asking. And then if you are going to be wise, you must build your life on the Word of God. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, Jesus says that whoever hears my word and does it is like a wise man that builds his house on the rock. And when the rains fall and the winds blow and the floods come, his house stands because it's built on the rock. The one that hears my word and does not do it is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand and the rains fall and the winds blow and the floods rise and that house falls with a crash because life cannot stand the storm unless it's built on the solid rock of God's biblical wisdom. And so to walk in wisdom, first Paul says in verse 15, watch your step. Still with me? Secondly, he says in verse 16, redeem the time. Redeem the time. 
Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. God governs our lives by two factors, space and time. If you're taking notes, you should jot down Acts chapter 17, verse 26, that says, and he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places. Acts 17, verse 26, Paul says, God created from one man every nation. And God determined the allotted places and the periods in which every person would live. God governs our lives by governing space and time. Listen, friends. If God is real, there is no such thing as accidents. Where you are, where you live is no accident. You may be thinking, I don't know how I ended up in Jacksonville, Florida. But God knows. And it was no accident. God plants us where he plants us on purpose. And let me tell you, you can't live a blessed or, or fruitful life if you're always looking out the window trying to be somewhere else. You got to learn how to let God blossom you where he plants you. I'm not suggesting that you are stuck in the same place forever. I'm just saying, ultimately, that's not your job to worry about that. Take it from pastor. When God is ready to move you, he will move you. What I'm trying to say is don't think you have to be somewhere else for God to bless your life. Do you know God is so great that he can make your life fruitful in what seems to be a barren place. I wish I had a witness. I've been saying that all day and won't nobody amen me, so I'm going to just bring my own witness. You need to go to Genesis and talk to Lot and Abraham. Lot and Abraham were both blessed, and their servants started fighting over land, and Abraham said, you my nephew, we relatives, we shouldn't be fighting, we need to part ways, you pick whichever way you go, and I'll take what you leave. I wish I had Bible readers there. And the Bible says that Lot looked around and saw how plush the plain was, and he chose the place that looked so pretty for the record, that pretty place was called Sodom and Gomorrah, and it went up in smoke. And Abraham said, you can have it. I'll take what you leave me, but you ain't leaving me with land. God is with me in the land. Looked like Abraham was getting leftovers, and God says, Abraham, look up in the sky. 
If you can count how many stars there are, you can count how many descendants are. Look at the, look at the sand. And if you can count the grain of sand, you can determine how much I'm a blessing. It ain't about where you are. If God is on your side, he can take care of you wherever you are. God determines where you live, but God also determines when you live. It ain't an accident that you live where you live. It is not an accident that you live when you live. God reigns over time. And this time that God gives us is life's most precious commodity. I'm convinced about that the older I get. Better stop chasing money. Money ain't as important as you think it is. And if you lose it, you can get more money. But if you waste this day, you'll never get it back. And the longer I'm living, the more I just don't want to look back over my life with regrets. But I wasted my life on things that don't matter. You don't get that time back. Time is life's most precious commodity. If you don't believe that, you read Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is the prayer of Moses as he prays about the brevity of life and the frailty of life. And in the midst of that prayer... He says in Psalm 90, verse 12, so teach us how to number our days so that you may gain a heart of wisdom. In the same spirit, Paul says here in Ephesians 5, verse 16, that if you're going to walk in wisdom, you've got to learn how to make the best use of time. Literally, you must redeem the time. Redemption is a word for salvation. It is a picture of the slave market where a wealthy man would pay the slave debt of a slave to set him free. This is what Jesus did at the cross. He paid your debt and mine to set us free from the bondage of sin. But it's an economic term. Redemption is an economic term for the marketplace. And the idea is simply this. It's you're in the market and you see something that is worth having and you have money on you but you give up what you have to get something else valuable. Paul says, you use money like that, you got to learn how to use time like that. You've got to make best use of the time. You've got to redeem the time. You've got to learn, let me say it this way, how to buy up the time. You got to learn, church, how to give up some things in order to get something better. Jim Elliott, his name escaped me in the previous service. Jim Elliott was a missionary in Ecuador who lost his life with the rest of his team as natives killed them. When they searched his belongings, they found that a few days before his martyrdom, he had written in his journal, 
He is no fool who gives up what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose. In the real sense, this is what it means to buy up the time. It, it means that you, you learn how to give up stuff that you can't keep in order to gain what you can't lose. Listen, in the economy of Scripture, the things that are most valuable are the things that last the longest. And, and Paul is saying it is foolish to invest all of your life in things that do not last. You got to learn how to give up what you can't keep in order to gain what you cannot lose. You've got to make the most use of the time. If I may be technical for just a moment, there are two Greek words, major Greek words for time. The common term in the New Testament for time is the word chronos. It's where we get our English word chronology. It is the flow of time, the passing of times, seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years. It's the hands of the clock going around. But the term used here is not chronos, it's kairos, which is not time in general. It's a set time, the proper time, the right time. It's the term used for divine initiative, divine intervention, divine intent. It's God's timing. And the reason why you should make the most use of the time, giving up what you can't keep to gain what you can't lose, is because you should live with confidence that God's timing is perfect. God doesn't live in a world of clocks and calendars. Too early, too late, not in God's vocabulary. Whenever God shows up, it's the right time. He, 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 his timing is, is, is perfect. This, this is why you just do his will and, and just leave the consequences in his hands. Because God's timing is perfect. He showed up for Noah a hundred years before the rain and the flood. But it was still the right time. He showed up for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego while they were in the fiery furnace. But it was still the right time. He didn't show up for Mary and Martha until after Lazarus had been dead four days. And they said he stinks by now, but it was still the right time. Time. Whenever God shows up before the problem, in the middle of the situation, or when it seems like it's all over, it, it's still the, the right time. This is why you live in wisdom and do His will. Isaiah 40, verses 28 through 31 says, Have you not known? Have you not heard that the Lord is God, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint, He does not get weary. There is no searching of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and to those that have no might. He increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall down exhausted. But they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings as eagles. They'll run and not be weary. They will walk and not 
faint. So Paul says, if you want to walk in wisdom, you must make the best use of the time. And then he tells you why. Look at the B part of verse 16. Because the days are evil. <laughs> Paul wrote that in the first century A.D. What do you think he would say about 2016? We don't have time to waste in life because the days are evil. This is not about Christian persecution, but by the end of the first century, the church would be persecuted under Nero. That's not what Paul is talking about here. I believe that's what he calls in chapter 6, verse 13 of Ephesians, the evil day. You need the whole armor to withstand in the evil day. Here, when he says the days are evil, he is not talking about Christian persecution. He's talking about moral corruption. If you, if you, if you play around with the world too much, you can easily fall in. You must devote yourself to a greater affection. In Greek mythology, there were the sirens, animal-like women. They were said to be beautiful, but more importantly, as the mariners would pass by their island, they would sing their song. That's where we get the word siren. These sirens would sing and attract the mariners who would change course and head to the island only to be killed by the sirens. I told this story at 745 on my way to the next service. My son, HB, brings me my coat out and says, this is a good day, Daddy, where I get to teach you something. You didn't get the whole story. So he texted me the rest of the story. Odysseus had finished the Trojan War and was on his way home dealing with the betrayal of an unfaithful wife that would cost him his kingdom. And he had to pass by the island of the Sirens, but knowing the power of their seduction, as they neared the island... He had his sailors to tie him up to a post so that when he heard the song, he couldn't change courses. And the sailors covered their ears until they got in the distance and didn't hear the song. And, and really, in a real sense, this is what Paul is saying in the text. If you're not going to be led astray by this evil world, you've, you've got to... You got to be wrapped up, tied up, and tangled up in Jesus. You need to give yourself to something more worthy, something more beautiful, something more valuable, something more wonderful, something more lasting. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If you want to walk in wisdom, you've got to watch your step, redeem the time, and then thirdly, understand God's will. 
Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This is a different word, foolish, than the word, verse 15, unwise. The word here, foolish, means to be senseless or silly or stupid. The passage begins with Paul saying, walk in wisdom, and now it ends with him saying, don't be stupid. Saul was the first king of Israel. He was head and shoulders above all the men of the land, and God promoted him, and he had all the makings of a great man. But though he started well, he ended miserably. And in 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 21, Saul says out of his own mouth, after he had tried to kill David, but David treated him right even though he tried to treat David wrong. He says, I have played the fool and have been greatly mistaken. And everybody plays the fool sometimes. This is why we need Jesus. This is why we need the blood of his cross. This is why we need the forgiveness that he provides. Because all of us at some time or another, we, we, we play the fool. You play the fool when you live for self rather than God. You, you play the fool when you think you can get away with partial obedience. You play the fool when you hurt people who are trying to help you. You play the fool when you forget who gave you what you have. You play the fool when you go your way instead of God's. And so Paul says, don't be foolish. How do you prevent that? Last clause. Understand what the will of the Lord is. There is the macro will of God that encompasses all of creation. Ephesians 1 calls it the mystery of his will. God, uh, if, if I may say it this way, history is his story. God has a plan for the universe, and from him and through him and to him are all things. But, but not only does God have macro will, he also has micro will. That is, the God who rules the world has a plan for your life. May I try that again? God is busy running the universe, but he's not too busy to remember you. He has a plan and purpose 
for your life. And this is what Paul is talking about here. He assumes God's macro will, but he is saying you need to understand what the will of the Lord is for your life. I think this is another way of saying Romans 12 verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind, that testing, by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and excellent and and perfect. The will of God is found in the Word of God. You want to know the will of God? Read the Word of God. The will of God is in the Word of God. You want to hear God speak? Read your Bible out loud. God speaks through His Word. But as I said, not every decision of life has a chapter and verse for it. And this is where you need wisdom and a heart's desire to understand the will of God. What does he mean by understanding the will of God? I think it means the same thing he means in verse 10 when he says, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Every decision in life should be examined by this standard. Would this please the Lord? To understand the will of the Lord will show up in your attitude and your choices. Verse 18, you won't be getting drunk with wine that is debauchery, but you'll be filled with the Spirit. You won't choose the wrong, you'll choose the right. He shows up in your attitude, verse 19 and 20. You'll be singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart and giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it'll not only show up in your choices and attitudes, but it'll show up in your relationships. You'll submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The person who is seated with Christ in the heavenly places should walk like Christ on earth. Specifically, we should walk in wisdom. Watching our step along the way, redeeming the time in these evil days, and seeking to understand what the will of the Lord is. In the year 1907, 45-year-old Adelaide Pollard went to a prayer meeting She was angry at God. It was her desire to join a missionary team that was going to a foreign land to share the gospel, but she did not have funds to go. She prayed and waited and trusted, but the funds never came in. And there are some things you ask God for, you're not sure if they're in His will. In her mind, she could not understand how Sharing the gospel with people who don't know Jesus could not be a part of the plan. Why the Lord did not provide the resources that she needed. So she's wrestling with God in this prayer meeting. But she is struck when she hears an older lady pray. And in that prayer, the old lady says, Lord, it doesn't matter what you do with us, just have your own way in our lives. She was offended by that statement, didn't like it, but when she went home, that statement wouldn't let her go. 
it kept her up. She started reading her Bible and was led in the providence of God to Jeremiah chapter 18, where God gives the prophet Jeremiah a vision of a potter who is in his house working on the wheel, and he is making a pot. He is making a vessel, but as he makes it, the clay is marred in the potter's hand, and instead of throwing it away, he smashes it and decides to make something new. And as the prophet is watching this vision, God whispers in his ear, can't I do that with my own people? Adelaide Pollard was cornered by prayer and Scripture. And that night, she surrendered her agenda to the will of God. But before she went to bed, she wrote down the terms of her surrender. And more than 100 years later, good churches still sing those words. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yield it and still. Maybe, church, that's the bottom line. If you want to walk in wisdom, I dare you today to say to the Lord, it doesn't matter what you do with me, Lord. Just have your own way in my life. I'm finished. God be praised for his work. Thanks for listening to Cutting It Straight with Pastor H.B. Charles Jr. If you'd like more resources from Pastor Charles or to support this ministry, you can reach us online at cutstraight.org. That's cutstraight.org. Thanks for listening and have a blessed day.